Welcome to the Congress of Forms podcast. This is your host, Christy Wampole. Can't help about the shape I'm in. I can't sing. I ain't pretty and my legs are thin. But don't ask me what I think of you. I might not get the answer that you want me to. topic of tonight's show, and yes, it is a very nocturnal topic, is dreams. But in order to talk about dreams, I think we have to be in a very particular state of mind. So let's go ahead and slide open that door and enter the dream world. In this episode, I'll be talking about my own dream life, and I'll try to figure out exactly what a dream is. But I first wanted to start with some examples of dreams from people that I know. And I'll start with the most interesting dreamer in my life, who happens to be my grandma. I dreamed one time that I lived in a house that the floors were dirt. And all these carousel pigs started growing out of the ground. <laughs> Corey thinks that one was funny. What's a carousel pig? Well, you know a carousel horse on a merry-go-round? Yeah. Well, these were carousel pigs. <laughs> they were growing out of the ground. Okay. <laughs> and I dreamed uh, that my neighbor, Billy, she had this big eagle, cement eagle, in her front yard. And it was probably like maybe four feet tall. And I went over with my riding mower and I cut its wings off. <laughs> and then I had to buy her a new eagle. <laughs> Oh yeah, I dreamed that Scotty was still small and wearing diapers and Corey was, you know, he was a little bit older than Scotty. So one day we were going to go to Kentucky Fried Chicken and Corey said, Grandma, I think you better change Scotty's diaper first. And so we changed his diaper and went to Kentucky Fried Chicken and they didn't have any Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> so they had nothing. They had there. nothing. <laughs> yeah, Glennis dreamed that after, right after my mother passed away. She had a dream about them, and she dreamed that they, that Granny was driving, and it was this little, kind of like a little hover car. And they were just going over these hills and everything, and just her and my dad, my grandma, and, I mean, my mother and dad were laughing and just having more fun, and they had a dog in the back. And as they were bouncing on these things, my mother turned to uh, the little dog and said, Dog, you better sit down or you're going to get killed. <laughs> <laughs> they had already passed away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then she dreamed that uh, she went up to Mother and Daddy's house, and Daddy was sitting on the end of the bed. And she walked by and went into the other room to get to get her granny. And she came back, and uh, as she walked by my dad, he said, Bye, Glennis. And she thought that was 
my dad's way of telling her goodbye, yeah. you know. So. Yeah, that's sweet. Yeah. Yeah, I dreamed that I pulled in the driveway and there was a black and white police car backed in in my front yard over here by my house. And it, I came, and came in and found out it was Tracy had put it there and I was really mad at him for putting that police car in my yard. But then when I came in, before I could say anything to him about doing that, he said I was wanted on the phone and it was somebody calling me about my water bill. <laughs> yeah, I dreamed that I, there was this little red pickup sitting on my front porch. And I went out there and I asked uh, Grandpa, I said, what, what's that pickup doing here on the porch? He says, oh, I think I'm just fixing to work on it. <laughs> uh, Brad had gotten trouble and so he was in a boot camp down in Mansfield and they had to wear these orange kind of jumpsuit things so uh, his grandpa and me and Scotty went down there one day to see him and so we parked out there and uh, they came and brought one of these orange jumpsuits for me to put on because they were fixing to take me in there and uh, grandpa just disappeared I don't know where he went he left us and Scotty was in the back of the car doing his homework. And this little tiny donkey came walking along the road. And I said, oh, look at that little jackass. And of course, uh, Scotty said, oh, Grandma, that's not a jackass, it's a burrow. <laughs> <laughs> Grandma's a surrealist and she didn't even know it. <laughs> that's so crazy. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. And no, you can't have her. She's mine. I must have inherited my active dream life from my grandma. Every night I have vivid dreams, often nightmares or extremely realistic dreams. Sometimes these dreams have no images but consist only in feelings. I have several different recurring ones. When the semester is about to begin, I generally have one of three dreams. The first seems fairly obvious to interpret. I dream that I'm standing in front of my class about to begin teaching, but I suddenly realize my notes are out of order, and I begin to shuffle through the papers, trying to put them in the right sequence. Everyone's looking at me as I shuffle papers for the entire duration of the class. The second recurring dream is that I'm looking in the mirror at my teeth and notice that one of them is loose. I jiggle it and then pull it out. Then one by one, I begin to pull out all of my other teeth with my fingers. They seem to grow back endlessly. And finally, my third back-to-school dream is that I'm walking up a staircase that gets more and more narrow until the stairwell begins to feel like a very narrow shaft through which I can barely move my shoulders. I eventually get stuck in this shaft and begin to panic when I realize that I can't move. There are other patterns. I don't think I've ever had a dream that I can fly, but I often have a dream that I can jump really far. In these dreams, I can always control where I'm going, creating the environment with my mind, so to speak, as I move through these wide landscapes. I dream often that I discover abandoned towns in the woods, towns that feel like carnivals with amusement rides and pinball machines, but without a soul to be found anywhere. This kind of dreamscape gives me a full sense of astonishment and joy. I have a lot of recurring dreams about haunted bathrooms. In these dreams, the restrooms are huge and in some kind of abandoned building, old office buildings or old schools from the 1940s. The bathroom stalls often don't have doors and I feel very exposed in them. As I'm trying to go to the bathroom, I get self-conscious 
and think that people are going to walk in on me, so I usually walk around the building to find a more private restroom. But in these dreams, I suddenly realize that the bathroom is haunted, although I never see any ghosts or any evidence of this presence. It's just a feeling. Son, le boss, nouvelle mission Comme toujours, c'est le top secret d'obsession Donc je mets mon survet white et tous ces gadgets La blanche casquette de mon pote Bacardi, Bacardi, ma smoke mobile avec mes fausses locks Direction le lieu du crime des films prennent en photo J'arrive dans la boîte de mille lointaines Plein de pointeurs qui font coin, coin, coin Va fort au moins dans l'heure Ici les jupes sont tellement courtes qu'elles sont hautes Et souvent on lève les mains en criant haut Bon faut que je trouve la bombe avant qu'elle pète Ou le boss va se fâcher sa frassette moi si j'y vais 8 minutes par toute la nuit t'es fou voici la série Zouk Nous savons tous qu'il y a un temps pour tout Donc je prends ma pause Nelly m'approche et me dit Je suis ta chance ton billet bingo vas-y frotte moi smoke Donc je la frotte et découvre que c'est pas le gros lot Pendant ce temps mon bionique œil gauche grille les terreaux Risque je suis de l'œil sans trop risquer Ma vie je grille leurs secrets Quand ils s'arrêtent près du bac à disque Les mises de mes ennemis me piffent Déchire ma chemise, sniff mon torse, ma pêche Le nom c'est OXMO, classé X tel les mains, il les manque top secret Le nom c'est OXMO, classé X tel les mains, il les manque top secret Le nom c'est OXMO, classé X tel les mains, il les manque top secret Le nom c'est OXMO, classé X tel les mains, il les manque top secret Je suis posté devant le bac à disque, j'enlève les disques I keep a journal in which I write down dreams as soon as I wake up from them Here are a few examples. In 2012, I dreamed that FDR was trying to physically assault me. On March 6, 2013, I dreamed that I saved an armload of baby pigs from a burning building. In late June 2014, I dreamed that I kind of had a baby. Uh, but things kept switching around in this dream. At first, there was a very pregnant woman, and I was calming her as she was about to go into labor. And then I was holding a little blonde toddler girl in my arms and telling her that it was okay, that she was about to be born in a few minutes, and that it was going to be uncomfortable, but that it would be over very quickly. Then the girl was gone, and I was standing next to the woman again who said to me, I really appreciate you helping me out. And now she was no longer pregnant, but I was, as though I'd helped her by magically transporting the baby to my own womb and giving birth in her stead. Suddenly, my water broke. My mom was helping me at some point, but the thing is, it wasn't my real mom. It was Shelley Duvall. The craziest, most intense dream I had was this strange rockabilly mashup. I was driving along a highway, then came to a four-block section on a bridge above the highway with lights galore, all lit up and tacky like a casino. There was something hellish about the scene, with all the features of rockabilly aesthetic. Whiskey, greasers, booze, also something very eerie and Halloween-like. I was suddenly in the midst of this strip, composed of busy shops that sold shrunken heads, uh, Halloween paraphernalia, head shop stuff. There were people everywhere, men in tight t-shirts and jeans with their hair slicked back with pomade, women looking like Betty Page. In the background, the screaming Jay Hawkins song, Frenzy, was playing over and over. There was no plot to the dream, nothing happened. I just walked all night in and out of these endless shops, 
with their voodoo motorcycle vibe. a rich dream life, but I don't even know what a dream is. I went and asked a colleague, Professor Michael Graziano, a neuroscientist in the Department of Psychology here at Princeton. I'm Mike Graziano. I'm a neuroscientist. And uh, these days I study how the brain may give rise to awareness, um, attention, consciousness, all these really interesting topics and what they may have to do with the underlying biology and the underlying machinery of of, um, information processing in the brain. And can you explain to me why you have a monkey sitting here in your office? Ah, the orangutan. His name is Kevin and he's very useful uh, partly to entertain my son but also he helps me make a point when I uh, give talks on the subject that I'm working on or when I talk about it in my classes. One one of the things we do, uh, well, we think about consciousness as a private thing, my own consciousness and what gives rise to it. But one of the ways that we use this construct of consciousness, one of the main ways we use it is we attribute it to other people. We do this constantly. And the puppet, the ventriloquist puppet, does a great job of of, of demonstrating that because there you are in the audience looking at this big fuzzy puppet and you know intellectually there's nothing in there there's no mind in there but you kind of can't help attributing this consciousness and mind and and whole set of mental states to this puppet so he's really useful for for that what is a dream a dream starts with something called um, a pgo wave 
PGO wave. So it starts with uh, something deep in the brainstem, very evolutionarily old part, part of the brain, the pons, that's the P of PGO, and this region generates random bursts of activity. Uh, those bursts of activity are transmitted to another part of the brain called the geniculate, that's the G part of PGO. That area of the geniculate is a relay on the way to visual cortex and visual cortex in the occipital lobe, that's the O part, PGO, pons, uh, uh, geniculate, occipital. Uh, it's a wave that starts, it's generated in this one nucleus, passes up to the geniculate, passes up to visual cortex, and that burst of activity is somehow interpreted or, or um, shaped by cortex into what amounts to a visual hallucination. So, so it's, it's a vision without the eyes. Yeah, it's generated in the brainstem. It's noise pumped into the system, uh, and it generates uh, hallucinations. It, it, it activates the parts of the brain that would normally be active when you look around the room and, and see what's going on around you. And so I, I know that you're, you're here sort of housed in the psychology department. Do you think about a dream differently when you're talking about it with neuroscientists and when you're talking about it with psychologists? Most of our scientific understanding of dreams these days comes from the neuroscience perspective. And there's kind of two sides to dreams, and one is what generates them. And there's this uh, some understanding of the underlying circuitry of what generates them. Um, and I, as I just described, this very, very old uh, system that generates noise, essentially, and passes it through your system. Uh, and there's the second side to it, which is why. What, what would be the use of that? And there's a lot of very interesting theories. I think the consensus these days is dreams serve a function in memory, in consolidating memory. So if you learn something, study some topic, or try to learn some skill, and then that night you dream well, or you have lots of periods of dream sleep, uh, that that is supposed to be uh, uh, helpful for consolidating and um, kind of you know allowing that memory to sink in and, and, and be more stable. That's the idea anyway. But what about when you dream about something that couldn't exist or that you've never seen? Right. I, I think that the, the deep question of dreaming is uh, it, it it seems to be quite noisy in a sense. That is, it's just random components all put together in strange ways. So why does that contribute to uh, memory? Um, what, if, you, if you remember something, sp uh, if you're learning something specific, how does it help you learn that to take a whole bunch of random fragments and run them through a blender and put them together in weird ways? Uh, and I think there's, you know, people have their theories as to why pumping noise through the system is better than merely rehearsing the specific thing that you had learned before. Uh, so the connections that you need are strengthened and, and, the, uh, uh, and other connections are, are perhaps not as strengthened. Or I, I, I'm, uh, but that, that's a very active area of research. Uh, I think there is still some controversy there. So is there a way you can learn something or anchor some memory in a dream that you haven't experienced in real life? So it's a kind of pedagogical process? In right. Well, one of the interesting properties of dreams is they're very hard to remember. That is, the events in them are really hard to remember. 
and um, nobody's quite sure why that is either. Uh, but it's rare that we remember our dreams. Even people who, who claim to dream a lot probably remember some tiny fragment of what they're actually dreaming. And of course, many people remember none of their dreams and insist they don't dream, but they do. <laughs> so since you're a specialist in, in consciousness, what about these dreams that we don't remember? I mean, what is the role of consciousness if we don't recall them, or are we actually ever cognizant of them, or is this something that's that has nothing to do with consciousness, but it's just a kind of brain activity? In my work, my slant on consciousness, there's many different ways to study it. One way is the very simplistic way. You're conscious when you're awake. When you're asleep, you're unconscious. That's it. But the kind of consciousness that I'm trying to get at is really the essence of what it means to experience something. And from that perspective, you're conscious during a dream. You experience it. You have in, uh, um, a subjective inner experience of what's going on. So you, you are indeed conscious during, during your dreams, and then you may or may not remember it later. Do they have any explanation for why some people seem to recall a larger percentage of their dream and others don't? I think it's just not well understood. It could be some people wake up more often during dream sleep. If you wake people up, they tend to remember uh, what they were just dreaming about. And you can, you can spot dream sleep. Uh, because well, most of the time, because um, there's a there's a type of sleep many people have heard of uh, rapid eye movement or REM sleep, where you're basically your eyes are bopping around looking at stuff in in your dreams, and uh, if you wake people up from REM sleep, they're very likely to report um, some kind of elaborate uh, dream state. So you're less likely to remember your dream if you wake up when you're not in REM sleep? If you wake someone up who's not in REM sleep, uh, first, it's much less likely that they'll report they were dreaming. Uh, So non-REM sleep or deep sleep seems to be less likely to be a dream. And second, the dreams tend to have much less vivid imagery, uh, much vaguer kind of things going on, um, and... You, you basically the what you remember is what what you were when you are woken up in a dream what you remember is what you were just dreaming about so you don't really have good memory that lasts more than a minute or so <laughs> when when you're asleep have you looked much into sleep paralysis and what's happening right well sleep paralysis is sort of an interesting problem for whatever reason the brain dreams and there's lots of theories as i said including memory consolidation there's some other theories but for whatever reason, it dreams when it's asleep. And one of the hallmarks of dreaming is that not only do you see stuff and hear stuff, but you're running around doing stuff. And your whole cortex is active. Your motor cortex that controls movement and your visual cortex and planning areas and, and all, all this becomes active. A little bit less in the very front part of your brain. The prefrontal cortex tends to be more quiet during dreaming than during wakefulness. But if you're that active, uh, that's kind of bad if your brain is functioning normally because you'd be running around and getting into trouble in real life. Uh, and so there's a system in place that blocks movement. It's a paralysis system. When you're dreaming, you're paralyzed. Uh, and so to the extent that you begin to come a little bit out of sleep and, and realize that you're really paralyzed, <laughs> lying there, unable to move, you, you have these... Um, dreams about paralysis and of course uh, if the paralysis persists you can just remain lying there in bed unable to move for a little bit but there's a specific mechanism in the brain that's there for good reason 
So for a sleepwalker, this mechanism isn't working correctly? That's right. In fact, there's a nucleus, a very specific nucleus, deep in the brainstem, and it can be damaged. And, you know, this has been studied in, well, in a variety of animal models, but people may have the same problem, too. Very, very rare. But if that nucleus is damaged, then, yeah, you run around and act out your dreams and sort of grab things that aren't there and, and so on. One of the things you learn as a neuroscientist is that uh, very little of the brain is understood. And so it's not that you look at something as complex as a dream and say, ah, okay, I understand the whole thing from a nuts and bolts uh, reductionist point of view. I mean, no, there's just so much that's not understood about dreams and what they're good for, a little tiny bit that is understood. So yeah, I can look at my own dreams from a neuroscience perspective, but that's a little bit boring. I think. Uh, at least from a personal point of view, it's a little boring. I think what I what I do, one of the things I like to do is look at it from a literary point of view. Uh, so I you know I write. I like to um, write down my dreams when I can remember them, and they can be great fodder for for fiction because they're completely bizarre, very bizarre and very emotional. Do you remember a story in particular yeah, sure. that you wrote that was inspired by a dream? Yeah, I have a, I have a, a, a little short novel. It's called The Divine Farce. It's um, uh, based on a dream that I had. I had this dream, woke up, thought, that's cool, and I wrote it down, and then a little later I wrote a longer version, and then later I wrote an even longer version, and that got published, and um, a lot of people find it really quite interesting and quite bizarre, just like I did when I first woke up from it and thought, holy crap, well, that's really interesting. <laughs> and so it's, it's this kind of stereotype of the inspiration that arrives from nowhere, that, that it comes to you while you're sleeping. Yeah, well, you know, what they say about um, creativity or creative work is that it's really useful to turn off your critic sometimes and let all kinds of random things get through that you wouldn't ordinarily admit through your critic. And there's no better time for that than when you're asleep and, you know, your critical facilities are not functioning. <laughs> is, is a daydream a real thing that somehow, um, I don't know, that neuroscience has a language for? Or does it just mean, you know, your mind has wandered? Or can they, could you somehow see it if you have a person sort of wired and you could sort of look at what their brain activity is, is doing? Right. Is well, a daydream 
is a daydream similar to a dream or is it a separate thing? Well, I mean, there's some similarities, of course. Uh, so, uh, but but obviously, they're they're really different phenomena. So, a daydream you have control over, um, and you're not hallucinating, at least not normally. Uh, you, you, the images are generated by you. You know the difference between what you're imagining and what's real around you. So there's a lot of differences there. On the other hand, when you imagine something, so mental imagery involves a kind of low-level activation of the same brain areas that process um, sensory stimuli. So your visual areas that light up when you look at things, they'll light up a little bit when you try to imagine things. And so imagery uh, is almost like a pale version of a, um, uh, an hallucination. So it's very similar in some respects to, to dreaming. And um, what about lucid dreaming, where people can control what happens in the dream? Right. Uh, you know, from a, from a I, I don't know what, it's, what it means from a theoretical point of view. I mean, you can dream about anything. So why not dream about being aware that you're dreaming? <laughs> and uh, but it's really interesting when something like that happens, and you know people can train themselves to do that. Uh, I tried and had one or two <laughs> lucid dream episodes, and that was kind of cool as far as it went. To me, the weirdest thing about dreaming is there are a whole set of theories, as I said, about why you need to dream, but there are people who don't dream. And that happens, I talked a little bit or told you a little bit about this uh, PGO wave, which is really the generator of dreams. And it comes from a very specific nucleus in the brainstem. And if that particular nucleus is damaged, you don't dream. You don't have dreams. And there are people who, who, you know, it's rare, but it happens. People who have some kind of tumor or stroke or whatever to that particular location, they don't dream. And then you ask, wow, dreaming is so ubiquitous. We think it has such important functions. What goes wrong with those people? They must be really screwed up somehow. And the answer is they're not. They're really normal. And that's, that's a puzzle. So is maybe the dream some kind of like vestigial um, like remnant of an earlier evolutionary stage that we don't actually need anymore, but that has just sort of remained? It, it could be. It's, but on the other hand, there... A dream is very costly in energy. I mean, you use your brain like crazy during a dream. It alters your synaptic connections, so it's doing all kinds of things in there, and if it didn't do any good, it would be wreaking havoc in there. So, uh, And it's ubiquitous. I mean, most people have dreams. Most animals we know of have dreams. Even um, turtles have been found to have dreams. Uh, essentially dreamlike activity. I mean, you can't quite ask the turtle. They're not that vocal, as it turns out. But, well, um, I read once that um, even fetuses have the patterns of dreaming. Yep. But since it's a kind of visual phenomenon, if you have no sort of source images, since you haven't seen anything yet, what do fetuses dream about? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, uh, like us, what they get is noise passed through the system. There's some use, I guess, to having random electrical noise pass through your system regularly when you're asleep. And uh, as adults, we can take that noise and interpret it, or as people who have some experience in the world, we our brains automatically interpret it according to our previous experiences. 
I presume a fetus doesn't have much experience to allow it to interpret that, but it's having the same underlying phenomenon, yeah. And since you said that the brain uses a lot of energy when it dreams, if a person was, I don't know, say starving, Uh would they not have dreams in order to save energy? You know, I don't know. That's a really good question. Uh, You know, who knows? Yeah, because it seems like your body at some point would would decide, I don't want to waste any calorie, you know, I can't waste, I can't, I don't have the luxury of wasting anything, and so it would just shut down all of this activity. It, it I don't know, be. that's a weird random Well, hypothesis. it could be. I mean, another hypothesis is, um, well, think of it this way. Your neurons in your brain, when they're active, generate heat. I mean, that's just what happens when cells are active, metabolically active, they generate heat. And your brain has sources of heat and sinks the heat dissipates out of your skull uh but it maintains a very narrow band of of temperature it only functions within that narrow band so when you're asleep when you're in deep sleep and your neurons aren't active one of the main sources of heat is gone and so your brain would necessarily start to cool down a little bit maybe there's a system that says oops it's too cold now the brain has to be active and so it just sends random activity up there mm, so it has to maintain a certain temperature it could be i mean you know you uh, when you get cold your muscles shiver <laughs> that's just random activity to generate heat so maybe dreams are just brain shivering so to speak <laughs> i mean that's another theory there's lots of these ideas out there uh, but like i said the thing i find really interesting is you get people who don't dream and they're pretty normal mm-hmm. so Hey! Hey. You a dreamer? Yeah. I haven't seen too many of you around lately. Things have been tough lately for dreamers. They say dreaming's dead. No one does it anymore. It's not dead, it's just it's been forgotten. Removed from our language. Nobody teaches it so no one knows it exists. The dreamers banished to obscurity. Well, I'm trying to change all that, and I hope you are too. By dreaming every day. Dreaming with our hands and dreaming with our minds. Our planet is facing the greatest problems it's ever faced. Ever. So whatever you do, don't be bored. This is absolutely the most exciting time we could have possibly hoped to be alive. And things are just starting.
You talk to a neuroscientist for half an hour, and you get answers to these questions you've had for years. A little insight into that intracranial microcosm. The other night I was talking to a Vietnam veteran at a bar, and he said that all of his dreams recently have been haunted by the deceased. Every single dream of his puts him in contact with someone he lost. Dreams can be gentle with us, or they can put us through pain. They let us commune with the dead, or with people who've never existed, virtual people who are pure creations of our own brains. Dreams can float between utopia and dystopia, between what is desired and what isn't. A dream always has the power to become a nightmare. I'm coming up man size, skinned alive. I want to fit, only got to get man sized. I'm heading on, handsome. Got my leather boots on, got my girl, she is a wow. I cast my eye on knickers down, man size, no need. Over the summer, I sat in a kitchen in Berlin with three German guys, talking about eerie stories or inexplicable things that had happened to us. We also talked about nightmares we'd never forgotten. I told them about the two times I experienced sleep paralysis. Both times I couldn't move at all, but I thought I could see through the darkness that someone was standing in the room watching me. The first time was in a small hotel in Paris. I saw a silhouetted form standing between me and the window but my body was completely frozen. I couldn't call out for help or run away or fight. The second time, I was in my apartment and opened my eyes but couldn't move. And this time I was less alarmed than the first time because I'd learned what sleep paralysis was and knew that it would take just a few minutes before I'd be able to move again. The apartment had a smoke detector in the bedroom with a bright green light that would shine down from the ceiling in a single thin line. 
I felt a jolt of terror in my lungs when I saw that the line of green light was interrupted by a human shape. When I told this part of the story to the guys in the kitchen, one of them held up his arm to show me that every hair on it was standing straight up. discussion on dreams has to include the contributions of psychoanalysis. Here's what Sigmund Freud writes in his 1921 text, Dream Psychology, Psychoanalysis for Beginners. Quote, the majority of medical writers hardly admit that the dream is a psychical phenomenon at all. According to them, dreams are provoked and initiated exclusively by stimuli proceeding from the senses or the body, which either reach the sleeper from without or are accidental disturbances of his internal organs. The dream has no greater claim to meaning and importance than the sound called forth by the ten fingers of a person quite unacquainted with music, running his fingers over the keys of an instrument. The dream is to be regarded, says Bentz, as, quote, a physical process, always useless, frequently morbid, end quote. All the peculiarities of dream life are explicable as the incoherent effort, due to some physiological stimulus, of certain organs or of the cortical elements of a brain otherwise asleep. But slightly affected by scientific opinion and untroubled as to the origin of dreams, the popular view holds firmly to the belief that dreams really have got a meaning. In some way, they do foretell the future, whilst the meaning can be unraveled in some way or other from its oft bizarre and enigmatical content. The reading of dreams consists in replacing the events of the dream, so far as remembered, by other events. This is done either scene by scene, according to some rigid key, or the dream as a whole is replaced by something else of which it was a symbol. Serious-minded persons laugh at these efforts. Dreams are but sea foam. One day I discovered to my amazement that the popular view grounded in superstition and not the medical one comes nearer to the truth about dreams. I arrived at new conclusions about dreams by the use of a new method of psychological investigation, 
one which had rendered me good service in the investigation of phobias, obsessions, illusions, and the like, and which, under the name psychoanalysis, had found acceptance by a whole school of investigators." End quote. So in this first chapter, uh, Freud goes on to analyze the dream that he claims to have had the night before. And here's the dream that he reports. Quote, Company at table. Spinach is served. Mrs. E.L., sitting next to me, gives me her undivided attention and places her hand familiarly upon my knee. In defense, I remove her hand. Then she says, but you've always had such beautiful eyes. I then distinctly see something like two eyes as a sketch or as the contour of a spectacle lens. So that's the end of the dream. Uh, and he writes, quote, This is the whole dream, or at all events, all that I can remember. It appears to me not only obscure and meaningless, but more especially odd. Mrs. E.L. is a person with whom I'm scarcely on visiting terms, nor to my knowledge have I ever desired any more cordial relationship. I've not seen her for a long time and do not think there was any mention of her recently. No emotion whatever accompanied the dream process. Reflecting upon this dream does not make it a bit clearer to my mind. I will now, however, present the ideas without premeditation and without criticism, which introspection yielded. I soon notice that it is an advantage to break up the dream into its elements and to search out the ideas which link themselves to each fragment. End quote. And so um, he begins to divide his dream into its fragments, and those include details like the, the eyes comment or this appearance of eyes in the dream, the fact of eating dinner while in company with other people, and the detail of the spinach. And of this last detail, he writes, quote, I still might ask why in the dream it was spinach that was served up. Because spinach called up a little scene which recently occurred at our table. A child whose beautiful eyes are really deserving of praise refused to eat spinach. As a child, I was just the same. For a long time, I loathed spinach until in later life, my tastes altered and it became one of my favorite dishes. The mention of this dish brings my own childhood and that of the child's near together. You should be glad that you have some spinach, his mother said to the little gourmet. Some children would be very glad to get that spinach. Thus, I am reminded of the parents' duties toward their children. End quote. So then Freud walks the reader through an analysis of his dream, but he doesn't go all the way. There are certain conclusions that he keeps to himself. And what are these conclusions? He ends, quote, I could draw closer the threads of the web which analysis has disclosed and would then be able to show how they all run together into a single knot. I am debarred from making this work public by considerations of a private, not of a scientific nature. After having cleared up many things which I do not willingly acknowledge as mine, I should have much to reveal that had better remain my secret. Why then do I not choose another dream whose analysis would be more suitable for publication, so that I could awaken a fairer conviction of the sense and cohesion of the results disclosed by my analysis? The answer is because every dream which I investigate leads to the same difficulties and places me under the same need of discretion. Freud was a simple, complicated man. 
One of Freud's most famous cases was that of the Wolfman. This was the nickname Freud gave to his Russian patient, Sergei Pankiev, who reported this dream to him. Quote, I dreamed that it is night and I'm lying in my bed. The foot of my bed was under the window and outside the window there was a row of walnut trees. I know that it was winter in my dream and nighttime. Suddenly the window opens of its own accord and, terrified, I see that there are a number of white wolves sitting in the big walnut tree outside the window. There were six or seven of them. The wolves were white all over and looked more like foxes or sheepdogs because they had big tails like foxes and their ears were pricked up like dogs watching something. Obviously fearful that the wolves were going to gobble me up, I screamed and woke up. My nurse hurried to my bedside to see what had happened. It was some time before I could be convinced that it was only a dream because the image of the window opening and the wolves sitting in the tree was so clear and lifelike. Eventually I calmed down feeling as if I'd been liber liberated from danger, and went back to sleep. The only action in the dream was the opening of the window, for the wolves were sitting quite still in the branches of the tree, to the right and left of the trunk, not moving at all, and looking right at me. It looked as if they had turned their full attention on me. I think that was my first anxiety dream. I was three or four at the time, certainly no more than five. From then on until I was 10 or 11, I was always afraid of seeing something terrible in my dreams. So Freud does an analysis of this dream and he concludes that it has something to do with um, Sergei witnessing what he calls the primal scene, which is he walks in on his parents having sex. But he has other dream, other dream analyses related to the idea of mythological stories or fairy tales and, and draws a parallel between the function and structure of dreams and the function and structure of fairy tales. And let me give um, some examples here. This is Freud writing now uh, about Sergei. Sergei, quote, always related this dream to the memory that in those childhood years he would express a quite monstrous anxiety at the picture of a wolf that was to be found in his book of fairy tales. His elder sister, highly superior, would tease him by showing him this very picture on some pretext or other, at which he would begin to scream in horror. In this picture, the wolf was standing on his back paws, about to take a step forward, paws outstretched and ears pricked. He thought this picture was there as an illustration to the fairy tale Little Red Riding Hood. And then Freud goes on to explain, quote, Fear of the father was the most powerful motive for his illness, and an ambivalent attitude towards any father substitute dominated his life, just as it dominated his behavior in the consulting room. If, in my patient's case, the wolf was merely the first father substitute, the question arises as to whether the secret content of the tale of the wolf who gobbled up the little kids or the tale of Red Riding Hood is anything other than infantile fear of the father. My patient's father, incidentally, had a characteristic ten tendency to affectionate scolding of the kind used by many people in dealing with their children, and the teasing threat, I'll gobble you up, may have been uttered more than once when the father, later so strict, used to cuddle and play with his little son. One of my patients told me that her two children were never able to feel really fond of their grandfather because he used to frighten them in the course of his affectionate games by telling them he would cut open their tummies.
So now it's time to take all of this material and mash it up into a nourishing porridge for your dreams. My grandma's carousel pigs, FDR, the rockabilly nightmare, Kevin the orangutan, dreaming fetuses, silhouettes that watch in the green light, the goosebumps of a German, that gum you like that's coming back into style, a plate of spinach, and six or seven wolves. You fed your subconscious for the last hour, and I hope that it, it will push your dreams tonight in directions they never would have gone otherwise. And I hope you'll write me about it. So now it's time to leave the dream world and go back to waking life. Archipel, peuple et sirène. 
sous cargo dans la sirène d'alarme, sais-tu, es-tu resté Au hasard des courants, as-tu déjà touché ces lumineux coraux d'écho de Guinéenne Où s'agitent en vain ces sorciers indigènes qui espèrent encore en des avions brisés Je garde cette espérance d'un désastre aérien. 